2 Corinthians chapter 10. Scripture is full of admonitions that remind us that the Christian life is warfare. And and we're encouraged to fight the good fight. We're admonished to take on the full armor of God. And we're supposed to be good soldiers of Jesus Christ. So the New Testament is full of that kind of militant language. And Christians in ages past, especially those who suffered harsh persecution for their faith, they've always understood that the Christian life is a battle. It's not a barbecue. Christians are perpetually beset with enemies that we can't even see, spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And the world that we do see defaults to a hostile position against the church. In the words of 1 Corinthians 3.13, do not marvel, brethren, if the world hates you. We're seeing that more and more these days, aren't we? Jesus said, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. So the church is at war, not because we seek conflict, but because neither the world nor these spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places, neither of them can abide the truth of what we believe and teach. And again, believers in ages past have understood this, and that's why they referred to the church on earth as the church militant, and the saints in heaven are the church triumphant. You've heard that expression. That's what it means. The church, the entire church, that is the body of genuine believers on earth, are supposed to be the church militant. But I think it's fair to say that the vast majority of Reformed and Evangelical Christians today have a totally skewed view of our duty as soldiers in the spiritual warfare. And Evangelicals have all but abandoned the duty to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. Uh, I, I saw this week where a pastor in Canada was arrested because he protested a, one of those drag queen story time things, and they sent the police to his house and put him in jail. And what appalled me was that there were a couple of well-known evangelical leaders in the U.S., that sided with those who said, yeah, that's not a nice thing for Christians to do to protest things like that. It's like, what do you think this is if it's not spiritual warfare? And instead, they think of evangelism as a public relations campaign where we're supposed to befriend the world and try by every means to win as much admiration and esteem from the worldly elite as we can. And if you mention spiritual warfare... The average churchgoer today will probably think that you're talking about a a kind of territorial conflict against demonic powers or or some kind of mystical hand-to-hand combat with unseen demons. And they, they will, you'll see this especially amongst radical charismatics, they hurl railing accusations blindly into the spirit world. And they make a great show of speaking directly to the demons with rebukes and verbal incantations that are supposed to bind the demons and send them to the pit or whatever. And a lot of people think that's what spiritual warfare is all about. It's a kind of shadow boxing approach to demonic warfare. And that started with Pentecostals, I think, but now it permeates the large evangelical movement in a way that is disturbing. People think you do battle with invisible demons by 
rebuking them or speaking directly to them. And in some cases, they advocate violent means for performing exorcisms, as if the battle against the forces of darkness really did involve a struggle against flesh and blood. And Scripture is very clear that the weapons of our warfare against the powers of darkness are not incantations and rituals and talismans or other tools of enchantment, and yet it sometimes seems as if rank superstition is what dominates the average church member's notion about what spiritual warfare entails, what it's supposed to be like. These trends, I think, began to be pervasive about 40 years ago or so. In 1986, Crossway, a good publisher, but they published a fictional book by Frank Peretti called This Present Darkness. Some of you will remember that. It was the first of a trilogy, and the sequels were titled Piercing the Darkness and The Prophet, and all three of those books shot to the top of the Christian bestseller lists and remained there for nearly a decade. And in the imagination of this author, Frank Peretti, Angels and demons are frequently manifest as visible creatures in the real world, and he portrayed the conflict between the forces of heaven and hell as a battle for control over territory, institutions, and cities, and whole communities. And those books set off a wave of interest in demonic warfare, and churches worldwide started holding prayer walks where they would gather in groups and walk the circumference of a village or a neighborhood and pray against the demons and claim this territory for God. And this became kind of mainstream. Uh, Campus Crusade, for example, now known as Crew, has a webpage to this day with instructions on how to wage spiritual warfare by organizing a prayer walk. They say, and, and I'm quoting, we prayer walk amidst the evil powers with prayers of warfare. And another fairly mainstream evangelical blog uh, webpage says this, quote, the beauty of taking prayer walks is the opportunity to do spiritual warfare for our communities in a very tactile way. I think that's a revealing comment. Tactile spiritual warfare is not even close to anything the New Testament describes. Uh, The idea they're portraying is that there must be a a physical dimension, something you can touch, that's what tactile means, something you can touch or see or possibly even engage in literal violence against or else you're not really doing spiritual warfare. That's the idea they convey. And for more than three decades now, that kind of thinking has dominated how evangelical Christians think about spiritual warfare. But again, that is not how Scripture portrays Christian warfare. Of course, it is true that Christians' fight is spiritual warfare. It's a battle in the supernatural realm, and it is against the collective forces of evil. Ephesians 6, 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. It's talking about demonic powers. So, Spiritual warfare is real, even if it doesn't involve tactile sensations or physical manifestations or visible phenomena. Spiritual warfare is real, and if anything, it is actually more dangerous and more serious, and the stakes are infinitely higher than any armed conflict between nations. 
And to be clear, it's quite true that our adversaries do include demonic armies, invisible, intelligent spirits, fallen angels who, among other things, Scripture tells us, can disguise themselves as angels of light. And no wonder, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise, Paul says, if, if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. So it's not ugly monsters that we're warring against. It's uh, beings who disguise themselves as angels of righteousness, servants of righteousness, and angels of light. But nothing in Scripture ever teaches us to engage these demonic powers in any kind of one-on-one exchange, as if we had power to command the demons or control them with magic words. True spiritual warfare is not mystical. It's rational. It's not about territory. It's about truth. Scripture doesn't tell us to use tactics that are occult and superstitious, but just the opposite. And you see this very clearly in the way Paul describes spiritual warfare, probably the place where he does it most vividly here in his second epistle to the Corinthians. And that's what I want to examine with you in this hour. These three crucial verses in 2 Corinthians 10 where Paul describes for us how he waged spiritual warfare. 2 Corinthians 10, uh, starting at verse 3, I'll read through verse 5. He says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. Now, here's the context of that passage. Paul's apostleship was under siege in Corinth. Sometime after he founded that church and got them established, His ministry took him away from Corinth, and false teachers moved in behind him, and and high on their agenda was an aggressive campaign to diminish that church's respect for the Apostle Paul. They questioned his apostleship, they questioned his character, and this is what the whole of 2 Corinthians is all about. Paul has been forced to defend himself, to defend his apostleship, to exonerate his personal character, and to reestablish his apostolic authority over this, what was really a wayward flock, the first charismatic church. And it appears that many of the people in this church had been influenced by these slanderous rumors that the false apostles had spread against Paul. It seems like the whole church had taken up a low opinion of Paul. And so he writes to them to defend himself and to correct the errors that were being spread there. And so the first seven chapters of 2 Corinthians are dominated by Paul's responses to several false accusations that had been made against him. Some of the lies that the teacher, the false teachers had spread against Paul were, were just mean and petty, and some of them were serious attacks against his character, but combined, they, they represented a significant attack uh, against his apostolic authority, and for that reason, these rumors about Paul were undermining the gospel. 
the message itself because people were beginning to move away from the truth that Paul had taught them. And so he's forced to defend himself because of that. Paul wouldn't and didn't like to, and you can see even the language he uses in this epistle, he does not like to defend himself. He calls it foolish and and a waste of time, and, and you can tell he does not want to do it, but he has to defend himself in order to f- defend the gospel in Corinth. And so the issue of his apostolic credentials becomes the focal point of his self-defense, and the very heart of it is in Second Corinthians chapter 5, where he mounts a vigorous and formidable defense of the gospel that he proclaimed. And he continues this through the end of chapter 7, answering his critics, and and then it's like he's had enough of that. So chapters 8 and 9, he turns to a new topic, and it's the issue of giving, the stewardship of their finances. And he speaks to them now for two chapters in a very warm and pastoral way about their duty to fulfill a pledge that they had made to help meet the financial needs of the saints in Jerusalem who were struggling under persecution because Roman armies were threatening and did actually bring about the utter destruction of Jerusalem. So the saints there needed financial help. The Corinthians had promised to give it. Paul is encouraging them to go ahead with that. And he reminds them that God loves a cheerful giver. And he ends that whole section at the end of chapter 9 in verse 15 with a joyful exclamation, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. But then the whole tone of this epistle suddenly changes again and there is this abrupt and momentous change from that tender, sympathetic, and even joyous language and Paul suddenly takes on a tone in chapter 10 that can only be described as militant. He returns to his self-defense and only now he's using the language of warfare. He knows he's under siege and And it's not just a personality conflict with people who don't like him. The very cause of Christ is under attack in Corinth. And so Paul sounds the charge with a clear reveille that employs what really is some of the most militant language you will find anywhere in the New Testament. And the militant section will escalate and continue through chapter 13, where Paul writes this, starting verse 1 of chapter 13. This is the third time I'm coming to you, he says. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. That scares me to read, huh? He's warning that he is coming prepared for battle. And if there's not repentance, he's prepared to set things in order in a militant way. He'll be coming with his weapons ready, and he will prevail over those who oppose the truth. It's not the kind of language that you would normally encourage a pastor or a missionary to employ when he's speaking or writing to the flock, right? But this was a pivotal time in church history, and this is inspired scripture, so there's nothing wrong with it. The very life of the church was in jeopardy in Corinth, and Paul is saying these things under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and with full apostolic authority. He's making a threat, and it's a militant, apostolic, aggressive, sort of combative declaration of war against the forces of evil that were at work in Corinth. But notice, 
It's a peculiar kind of threat and a singular kind of warfare, and that's what Paul is laboring to make clear in our passage. He's saying this is not a fleshly war. The weapons he's making ready are not fleshly weapons. He's not going to come with knives and swords and, and actually attack these guys physically. He gives us here in our passage a description of spiritual warfare that sets this whole issue in clear perspective for us because here we see clearly what Paul has in mind in virtually every context in the New Testament where he mentions spiritual warfare. What's he talking about? What does this warfare look like? He explains it here. And by the way, Paul uses the language of warfare a lot. He tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.18, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, and that by them you wage the good warfare. And in 2 Timothy 2, verses 3 and 4, he says, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. So, you get an insight into how Paul thinks here. To him, the whole Christian life is a perpetual state of battle. And you see this vividly as you just read the story of his life and ministry throughout the book of Acts and throughout the Pauline epistles. Paul is constantly in conflict. And it's not because he was a contentious man. Quite the opposite, but Paul had a lot of conflicts because he was such an effective warrior. Satan seems to have targeted Paul's ministry in a unique way, and it's true that if the powers of darkness had succeeded in overthrowing or disqualifying the Apostle Paul, the advance of the gospel would have been severely hampered at the very outset. And so Paul was continually engaged in warfare for the defense of the gospel and the preservation of the primitive church, and the reality of that warfare really colors everything he ever wrote. The church at Corinth was, you know, positioned at the heart of a, a very, a culture that, that represented everything evil, everything that was fleshly, everything that was worldly, all of this was the centerpiece of, of Corinthian culture. So naturally, the church at Corinth became a, a kind of focal point in the warfare Paul was waging. And, and here he tells us that we need to know how to keep a proper perspective on spiritual warfare. Here is the cure and the corrective for all of the superstition and charismatic nonsense that has confused and distracted so many Christians today about spiritual warfare. Here is the answer also to those who, who insist that in order to conquer postmodern society for Christ, we need to accommodate our message and our methods to the preferences of our postmodern culture. Here's the answer to that. And here again is what the Apostle Paul says about how we must fight in order to see victory in the battle against evil principalities and powers. I'm going to read our text one more time now that you have the context. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. And I want to draw from that passage three admonitions that will help you 
wage spiritual warfare more effectively. If you want to be the kind of warrior the Apostle Paul was, if you want to fight the good fight and win, here are three things to keep in mind. Starting with number one, don't misunderstand this battle. Don't misunderstand the battle. This is not a fleshly war. This is not a battle over earthly territory or a battle against flesh and blood. Verse three, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. Now, I have to address this. Why does Paul say we walk in the flesh? Because that doesn't sound like a positive thing at all, does it? Well, it's not. But apparently, here's how I think Paul means this. Apparently, obviously, some of Paul's critics had accused him of walking in the flesh. In verse 2, he refers to some who consider us as if we walked according to the flesh. So it's obvious here, isn't it, that his enemies were suggesting that Paul was secretly living an ungodly life, indulging in fleshly lusts and operating with self-serving motives. And Paul had actually answered all of those charges definitively in the first seven chapters of this epistle. So now he takes up this accusation that he walks in the flesh, and he employs what can only come across as a little sanctified sarcasm against his enemies. Though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. He's saying that the Christian warfare is not a carnal battle. He says, you can accuse me of walking in the flesh, but my warfare is not fleshly. It's not a battle for lands and cities. It's not a personal conflict against other people. It's a battle for the truth. Biblical Christianity is not and never has been like Islam spreading its influence at the point of a sword or with threats of force or acts of terrorism. The church has never been that way and it's not supposed to be. Although history includes a few sad episodes of wars and crusades and inquisitions that have been carried out by men who claimed to be acting in the name of Christ... Force, physical force, has never been the tactic by which the true church has sought to increase her influence. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. And the true church of Christ has never used force against her adversaries. The kingdom of God does not advance at the point of a sword like Islam. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. And so Paul makes it clear here that he's not talking about the use of actual force, military force, or or physical brutality. He's at war, but this is not a carnal war. It's a spiritual conflict. And it's easy, by the way, to lose sight of that. Even though we're talking about spiritual warfare, it's easy to forget what that means, and we begin to think of it in carnal terms and and our, our carnal attitudes and human anger surfaces in the midst of that, and yet Scripture reminds us that the wrath of man cannot work the righteousness of God. This is not a carnal war. So there are three things I want you to notice here, and if you're taking notes, my outline gets a little complex because we're on point one. You, You need to understand the battle. Three things about the battle that you need to understand, and so if you are taking notes, I'll help you get these down first. And most crucial, the issue is ideological. The issue at stake is ideological. Again, this is not a battle over territory. It's a fight for the minds and hearts of people. You have people, you know, running around today in the name of spiritual warfare, 
advocating all these tactics like territorial praying and spiritual mapping, whatever that's supposed to be. That was a big thing a few years ago. I can't tell you how many people in recent years have written to me or to Grace to You to ask us our thoughts about spiritual mapping. How do you do this? Give me some advice. And my answer is, well, don't do it because you won't find it in Scripture. Or prayer marching where, you know, Christians parade around a city or a community and claim that they're setting up some kind of spiritual barrier that's supposed to confound or overthrow these territorial demons. And, you know, they'll point to Joshua and Jericho. And I remind them, no, the the walls actually came down when that happened. They weren't erecting walls. I've been repeatedly asked to give a biblical response to practices like that, you know, prayer marching and spiritual mapping. and So here's my answer. The Bible knows absolutely nothing about practices like those. The Christian warfare is not about territory. It's about ideology. Look at at verse 5. We destroy what? Arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Four times he stresses that this is about what takes place in people's minds. It's about arguments and opinions and knowledge and thoughts. It's clear, right? It's about truth, not territory. Here's a second characteristic you mustn't miss about the nature of our spiritual warfare. If you don't want to misunderstand the battle you are waging, notice this. The arena of this warfare is actually much closer to you than you think. This is not only a battle against false religions that flourish in some other part of the globe. This is a battle against the spirit of this age. This is a battle about worldviews that are held by your next-door neighbors and sometimes even ideas that you will find being taught in supposedly evangelical churches and stuff that you're fed on the television set. Ideas, bad ideas, wrong values. In Corinth... The battle had been brought right into the church by the appearance of these false teachers. There are people today, large numbers of people in the visible church, who insist constantly that Christians should never fight over doctrine with other people who call themselves Christians. They say that ruins our testimony. We're supposed to be unified. They claim it's inherently unloving to criticize the teaching of anyone else who names the name of Christ or who says he loves Christ. You can't criticize them, and and much less, especially publicly. Well, that idea is manifestly false, and it's amazing that anyone who believes the Bible would ever entertain a notion like this. The Apostle Paul certainly didn't embrace that kind of folly. Notice that all of this militant language is aimed against people who had identified themselves as emissaries of Christ, men who had joined the Corinthian church, so they're part of this fellowship, and in fact, they taught there and even claimed to be apostles. So these are, in effect, church leaders, spiritual leaders. Jesus aimed most of his criticism at the religious leaders of his day. Now, we have to apply this principle with the utmost care. I I realize... There are people out there who seem constitutionally contentious, who love to wage battle over arcane points of doctrine, and they'll turn their guns against innocent sheep just as quickly as they attack the wolves. 
And that's why Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, verses 24 and 25, that the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, that God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. So in our defense of the truth, we should be vigorous and persistent, but never adopt a a pugnacious or belligerent or contentious spirit. In other words, this is not a call to pick fights over every disagreement that we have with other Christians. But when the issue at stake is the gospel itself, or say the doctrine of justification by faith, which is the very heart of gospel doctrine, or, or heresy about the person of Christ, or a denial of the lordship of Christ, or the doctrine of the Godhead, or any other vital aspect of the faith once delivered to the saints. When that's what's at issue, then we must earnestly contend for the faith, because defending the faith and contending for the truth of the gospel is the very point of the spiritual warfare that we have been called and commissioned by Christ to fight. And so the issue is ideological, if you're taking notes. The arena of warfare is closer to you than you might think. And here's a third characteristic of this spiritual warfare. The primary battlefield is the mind, which makes sense, right? Because if the issue is ideological and the goal, verse 5, is to take every thought captive to obey Christ then it ought to be patently obvious that this is a war waged for the dominion of the mind in the intellectual realm. It's a battle to subdue evil thoughts and evil ideas because when you do that, you overthrow evil systems. And the battle begins in the warrior's own mind. If your mind is not subject to the truth of Christ, then there's no way you can be a good soldier in this warfare. I'll have more to say about that later. But what I'm saying here is that there is an intellectual aspect to spiritual warfare that nobody should ever discount. I'm amazed at how many Christians have been deluded into thinking that there's something unspiritual about anything that deals with the human intellect, the mind. This is like right at the heart of a lot of charismatic teaching. Some people actually believe that an intellectual concern for sound doctrine isn't really spiritual. I hope you don't think that way. You shouldn't think that way if you've been coming to Grace Church for very long, but people do think that way. And it is true that we have to be doers of the word and not hearers only. If your interest in sound doctrine is only intellectual, you've got a serious problem. In fact, James is saying in that verse, be doers of the word, not hearers only. He's saying that if your interest in doctrine is merely an intellectual hobby for you, then you are self-deceived. But don't make the mistake of thinking that he is discounting the importance of hearing and knowing and understanding the word of God. He wants us to be hearers. He just doesn't want us to be hearers only. Scripture is filled with commands to read the Word and understand the Word and divide the Word of God rightly, to maintain sound doctrine, to have enough skill in handling Scripture to refute those who contradict the truth. We're all supposed to do that. In Hebrews 5, verses 12 through 14, the writer of Hebrews rebukes these Christians who just can't seem to get past the elementary principles of doctrine people who he says are unskilled in the works of righteousness because they haven't learned to digest the meat of God's word 
instead of constantly drinking milk. Solid food, he says, is for the mature, for those who have the powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Discernment is the fruit of a disciplined mind that is trained and skillful in understanding and properly applying God's Word, which is the sword of the Spirit. It is our weapon in the spiritual warfare. So the key battlefield of spiritual warfare is the human mind, and that means that if you neglect the development and the sanctification of your own intellect, you probably will become a casualty in this war. In fact, you, you, you will be a casualty. And so that's the first admonition. That's my first point, even though I had three sub-points. My first point in this is that I would glean from this passage, don't misunderstand the battle. It's an ideological one. It's not a territorial one. It's a spiritual battle, not a fleshly battle. It's fought in an arena that is closer to home than you might think, and the primary ground on which you fight is intellectual. So don't misunderstand what this battle is all about. Here's a second admonition for you. Don't distrust your weapons. Don't distrust your weapons. If you're using the proper weapons, you can win this warfare. You will win. Paul says that because this war is spiritual, it must be fought with spiritual weapons. Verse 4, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power, God's power, to destroy strongholds. And he goes on to describe that the strongholds he's talking about are ideological strongholds. And by the way, that entire verse is set off by parentheses in the authorized version, the King James Version. The fact that we're not talking about physical jihad with fleshly weapons is a point that is so simple and so obvious that it shouldn't need to be spelled out. But in case someone doesn't get it, Paul makes it as clear as possible. Our weapons aren't the weapons of conventional warfare, but they are divinely powerful for tearing down a spiritual enemy's strongholds. And incredibly, most Christians today, and evangelicals in particular, are obstinately and desperately trying to use carnal weapons in the spiritual warfare. I see this all the time. Well, what are carnal weapons? What do you think Paul is talking about here? Is he thinking of swords and knives and other military, literal military weapons? Certainly he would include those things among the carnal weapons that he rejects. But even more than that, I think carnal weapons in Paul's mind would include things like clever philosophy and manipulation and political pressure and protests and demonstrations and compromise and, and attempts to garner the church's political clout and all of that, all of those methods that are adapted for sheerly pragmatic reasons, I think Paul would write them off as carnal weapons. Because listen to Paul himself from his first epistle to this same church, the Corinthians. Chapter 2, he says, I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. My speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. He's saying the same thing here. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. That is, they're not of human origin at all. 
It's not man-made military machines. It's not clever ideas spawned in the minds of human philosophers. It's not techniques that are invented by imaginative innovators. And can I say this? The weapons by which our side will prevail in this battle are not public protest or court orders or legislation or clout in the realm of secular politics. It's okay if you want to mess around with those things, but you're not fighting spiritual warfare when you campaign for anyone to be elected. What are the true weapons of our spiritual warfare? I read one commentator who said, Paul here is speaking of the apostolic gifts, you know, miraculous gifts of healing and prophecies and various signs and wonders. That can't be. That's totally out of context. Paul is not going to battle against these false teachers by staging a contest to see who could do the best miracles. He is coming to answer their false teaching with the truth, specifically with the Word of God. And I think Paul actually has in mind here a weapon that is available to every Christian in every age. You know, he gives the full panoply of Christian armor and weaponry in, in... Ephesians chapter 6. And if you read that chapter, notice it includes a complete array of defensive armor, but just one simple offensive weapon. Here is the whole armor of God, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, feet shod with the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and all of those are defensive armor. And then he says, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. It's the only offensive weapon in the, in the bunch. And notice, there is nothing novel or innovative about any of those weapons. The breastplate of righteousness, feet shod with the gospel, the shield of faith, nothing novel. Those are all old weapons. If you're waging a military fight, if you really were in a carnal battle against flesh and blood, it would be important to have the most, the most modern and up-to-date weapons. You know, technology and innovation have always been important in conventional warfare. It's how the Ukrainians have held off the Russians for more than a year now. You know, you don't want to show up at a gunfight with a knife. You can't go up against a modern army with nothing but slings and arrows. But things are different in the spiritual realm. Our weapons are not carnal. We don't have any earthly military firepower. It may even seem to the carnal eye as if we are unarmed, but Paul says our weapons are mighty through God for the pulling down of strongholds. These weapons have divine power to destroy strongholds. They are powerful because they are the instruments of God's power and their true effectiveness does not lie in the skill of the swordsman or the cleverness of our strategies. The true effectiveness of this singular weapon in all its dimensions is the power of God himself. So don't distrust your weapon. It trumps every kind of fleshly weapon in this kind of spiritual warfare. I'm frankly weary of all the self-styled experts who constantly tell pastors and church leaders that unless they get with the times and tone down their message and, and uh, get in step with fashion and adapt their mes- methods to meet the preferences of this worldly generation, the church will die or we're going to lose the battle for the souls of men. 
You won't hear that in our Shepherds Conference, by the way. But you will, you will find it in practically every book on ministry philosophy that's been published over the past 40 years, sadly. I'm weary of that. I'm just as weary of all the political activists in the church who claim that unless we take our battle to the political arena and fight it there and only there, and we use our collective clout for political purposes, unless we do that, we're going to lose this culture. And I have news for those who haven't really read church history. The church of Jesus Christ has never owned the culture. The world has never liked the church, the true church. The people of God have never had the upper hand in shaping the culture of this world, and and we never will. We are in this world, but we're not of it. Our citizenship is in heaven, and that is not the least bit threatened by anything that happens here on earth, especially in the political arena. Now, before anybody runs off with the wrong impression, I'm not saying we should be passive or silent. Just the opposite. I'm saying don't distrust the weapons Christ has entrusted to his church. If you want to argue against the trends of our secular culture, all the gender confusion and uh, pro-abortion rhetoric that we get fed constantly, argue against it. But don't be afraid to use the word of God in your argument, because that's where the real power lies. You give in to this stress to make everything adapted to the political realm, you're actually giving up the most powerful weapon you've got. Don't underestimate the power of the Word of God or the influence of clear and dynamic preaching. Don't set aside the weapons God has chosen for us and trade them for Saul's armor. Only the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and pierces to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart, which is where the battle is all all about. And if you're going to wage war in the spiritual realm against evil imaginations and false ideologies, you need a weapon just like that, a discerner of the thoughts and intentions of the heart that cuts with precision and pierces to the depths of the heart. So if you're taking notes, I've totally confused you, but be sure you have this much. Don't misunderstand the battle. Don't distrust your weapons. Now, here's a third admonition to bear in mind. Number three, don't relinquish the fight. Don't give up if it feels like we're losing. We're not. Every general in every war knows how vital it is to have a clear goal. In modern terminology, you you need to know the end game. You have to have a distinct objective, and you can't walk away before that objective is complete. It's one of the key lessons America should have learned from the first Gulf War, right? It's also one of the lessons you learn from Scripture at King Saul's battle with the Amalekites in the Old Testament. You remember he let let too many Amalekites live, and he wasn't supposed to. When you're fighting an evil and tenacious enemy, you don't quit early. If you don't finish the war... Your enemy will regroup and regain strength and come back after you with a vengeance. And notice how comprehensive the ultimate goal of this spiritual warfare is. The end of verse 5. Bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. How far are we from victory in that battle? Pretty far, far, right? But don't miss the progression in the verbs Paul uses. I like the way these verbs are translated in the King James Version. Verse 4, 
pulling down strongholds. Verse 5, casting down imaginations. And then finally, bringing into captivity every thought. Pull down, cast down, and bring into captivity. It's an all-out assault, and the goal is not complete until every thought and every imagination of every human heart is subject to the lordship of Christ. And Scripture tells us we are going to reach that goal. I'd like to tell you this is a warfare that we could win in our lifetime, but it, it isn't. This war will not be over until the glorious return of Christ when he subdues the nations and establishes his kingdom forever. And you'll find the description of that and the culmination of all spiritual warfare in Revelation chapter 19, verse 15, where the apostle John describes his vision about the return of Christ. And here's what he says. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. What's that sword? It's the word of God. That's why it comes from his mouth. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. Again, that sword that comes out of his mouth is a spiritual weapon, not a carnal one. And it comes from his mouth because it is his word. It's the two-edged sword of the word of God, the very same weapon that you and I should be using in our warfare against the powers of darkness. And until Christ himself puts an end to this war by winning a complete and total victory, we are not allowed to relinquish the fight. We're not to give up our warfare and and think that we can win the world by entertaining people instead of fighting against their wrong ideas. We're not to take up a different kind of warfare in the carnal realm with carnal weapons. We are called to fight the good fight until we have finished the course of this life And it is a never-ending battle. Now, look at this expression, strongholds, in verse 4. And remember that we're talking about ideological fortresses. These are false doctrines and worldly philosophies and hedonistic and materialistic arguments. Every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And that expression, strongholds, in verse 4, parallels the word arguments in verse 5. And the King James Version translates the word as imaginations. The New American Standard Bible says speculations. The basic idea is that this is like an academic theory. It's some moral or philosophical or ideological opinion that is rooted in human rationalism and canonized by the worldly intellectual elite as if it were an ironclad argument against the authority of God. You know, the theory of evolution is one of those. The idea that the world sprang from nothing with no cause and everything is just random chance. Those arguments that are portrayed by many people as settled fact when in fact they're simply lofty human arguments against the authority of God. The Greek word that Paul uses here is logismos. It's from the same root as the English word logic, and it carries the idea of human reasoning, rationalism, rational and irrational arguments against the truth of God's word. And that expression, every lofty thing, is a literal translation of a Greek word that speaks of an elevated rampart or battlement. It's translated pretensions in one of the modern versions, and and that probably captures an element of what Paul has in mind. But the idea of fortresses and high things had a special significance in Corinth, 
And I think Paul is, is, is using these uh, expressions deliberately because they would have been familiar to everybody in Corinth. Just outside the city of Corinth, even to this day, is a very high natural rock formation that overlooks that city. It is a tower of rock that stands over 1,800 feet high, known as Acrocorinthus. Look it up on Google Earth when you get a chance because it's impressive. The ancient Corinthians had built an impregnable fortress up there. And it's so high that on a clear day, if you're up there, you can see Athens, which is 45 miles away. And this was a virtually impregnable fortress, this massive towering bulwark that was so high and so strong that literally no earthly army ever succeeded in tearing it down. And that's where the entire city of Corinth would retreat to if the city came under attack. It would go up there where it was safe. And to the Corinthians, the idea of pulling down or casting down a stronghold like that was unimaginable. Paul is comparing that kind of impenetrable fortress to the fortresses of lies and deception that we as Christians are called to wage war against. And it does seem that way sometimes, right? When you realize how much of the world is absolutely sold out to ideologies that are antithetical and hostile to Christianity, it looks like we are up against some really impregnable fortresses. However, he says, our spiritual weapons are mighty through God to the pulling down of those battlements. There's no need for any Christian ever to be timid about the truth or to shrink away in the face of false or anti-Christian ideologies. We don't need to compromise with them. We don't need to try to engage them on common ground. We don't need to try to dialogue with them as, as if we might eventually come to some kind of agreement. We have weapons that are powerful enough to tear those strongholds down. And we need to employ those weapons and keep at the fight until we have brought everyone who is barricaded in those fortresses into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Now, be sure you catch what he's saying here. Our aim in this spiritual warfare is not to destroy people, but to liberate them. We're following the lead of our captain who did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And captivity to the obedience of Christ is the true freedom. I know you understand that if you truly know Christ, Romans 6, verses 17 and 18, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, you become slaves of righteousness. And Paul is saying that is the true spiritual freedom, to be a slave of righteousness, The people who barricade themselves in fortresses of lies and deception, they are enslaved to sinful and evil ideologies, and our end game is the liberation of as many of them as possible, and we cannot relinquish the fight until the battle is completely over. Now, I want to speak in some very personal and practical terms here, and if you get nothing else from this passage, please understand this much. The Christian spiritual warfare is a battle for truth, not for territory. It's a fight over ideology, not a literal hand-to-hand combat with demons. It's a fight for hearts and minds. It's not a, a battle for cities and nations. And I've already said that the arena of this battlefield is much closer to you than you might think. 
Sometimes, like in Corinth, the church itself becomes the battleground, especially when grievous wolves have crept in and are threatening the flock. But let me go further. I said this earlier, and I promised I would return to it. The battle starts actually with your own heart. The goal and the end game for you personally is to bring every thought captive to obey Christ. And that starts right here in my own heart and mind. I don't have any control over your thoughts. I can maybe influence your thinking by the proclamation of the truth of God's word, but my role in that regard is instrumental only. You can't be accountable to me for your private thoughts, and I can't be accountable to you for what goes on in my head. If this is a battle whose aim is to take every thought captive to Christ, then the first and most important ground of battle for every one of us is our own personal thought life. Your part in the vast cosmic war for the minds and heart of men and women begins right there, and Paul knew that. On occasion, he described the Christian warfare in precisely those terms, Romans 7, verses 22 and 23. I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Or Galatians 5.17, the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. There's a struggle in each one of our hearts, and Paul is saying you can expect to have that kind of internal conflict, and you'd better fight a successful warfare in that conflict. That conflict you feel inside yourself is one of the key skirmishes in the cosmic spiritual war. Peter understood that aspect of the warfare, too. In 1 Peter 2.11, he wrote, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. That's why the New Testament uses such graphic and violent language when it speaks of our duty in the matter of sanctification. You want to be holy? Here's what you do. Romans 8.13, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And Colossians 3, 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. One of the sad realities of any kind of warfare is that the soldier must kill or be killed. And in the spiritual warfare, there is some killing to do, Paul says, Again, it's not about killing people, for that would require carnal weapons, and our weapons are not carnal, but it's about putting to death sin. First of all, in our own members, but also tearing down the strongholds of lies and false doctrines and worldly philosophies that have been erected by the powers of evil to control the hearts and minds of people in our society. And may I as gently as possible say that you cannot be a good soldier unless you take this warfare seriously. You must be spiritually earnest, sober-minded, sound in the faith, strong in the Word of God, and diligent in the battle. Too many Christians, especially in this worldly age, are content to coast through life 
taking nothing seriously, and if you know me at all, you know I'm not arguing against a good sense of humor. I love humor. But at the same time, this warfare that we are engaged in is serious stuff. It's not for the lazy or apathetic. In fact, if you are passive or careless at all in your own spiritual walk, you will suffer agonizing defeat at the hands of the enemy. If you entertain private thoughts that are unworthy of a Christian, that is like removing your armor in the heat of battle. You're not going to emerge without serious injury. Paul was conscious of that his whole life. He never reached the point where he took the battle for granted. And in fact, it was fairly late in his ministry when he wrote in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 26 and 27, I fight not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I preach to others, I myself should become disqualified. He never let down his guard, and he never took the warfare casually, and that is how he was able to fight the good fight and finish his course. He kept the faith. He guarded the faith. He fought for it without ever losing sight of the fact that the first and most important battleground to secure and hold fast was his own heart. Let me close with this. In October of 1941, during one of the bleakest times of World War II, Winston Churchill visited a boys' school, Harrow School in England, and as he listened to the schoolboys there singing one of their songs, he noticed that they had added a stanza that made reference to the darkness of the times they were living in. And so he, when he stood up to give his speech, he told them, look, boys, these might be stern days, but they're not dark He had every expectation that England would ultimately triumph. He said, we have only to persevere to conquer. He knew that if they hung on and kept fighting, they would win. And it was in that same impromptu speech that he delivered one of the most famous lines he ever spoke. He said, surely from this period of the past 10 months, this is the lesson. Never give in. Never give in. Never, 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 in nothing great or small, large or petty, never give in except to convictions of honor and good sense. Never yield to force, never yield to the apparently overwhelming might of the enemy, never give in. That's the kind of stance that you and I need to take as soldiers in the spiritual warfare. This is serious business, this warfare. Don't misunderstand the battle. Don't distrust your weapons. And don't relinquish the fight. Let's pray. Father, give us skill in this battle for the minds and hearts of people. And may our own hearts first be taken captive for obedience to Christ. Transform us by the continual renewing of our minds as you conform us to the image of our Savior. We pray in his name. Amen. You have been listening to pastor and teacher Phil Johnson. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by Phil Johnson. All rights reserved.